0: Welcome to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian century, where we go in search of voices and perspectives that inform and expand a life of faith. This podcast is inspired by a line from the poet Rainier Maria Rilke. You see, said the poet, I am one who likes to look for things. I'm your host, Amy Frickholm, and like Rilke, I like to look for things. Sometimes, let's be honest, more than I like to find them. In season one of In Search Of, we are exploring saints and sages inner and outer landscapes, and the dynamics of searching and finding. This week, our guest is Wendy Farley. Wendy directs programs in spirituality and the arts in the Graduate School of Theology at Redlands University, and is the author of many books on theology and wisdom, spiritual direction, and contemplative practice. Her most recent book is called Beguiled by Beauty, Cultivating a Life of Contemplation and Compassion. But because of the particular questions that I've been exploring in this podcast, questions especially about the nature of searching, I wanted to talk with Wendy today about her earlier book, The Thirst of God, and especially about Mechthild de Magdeburg, a medieval searcher who had a unique perspective on the human-divine relationship. So welcome, Wendy.
1: Oh, I'm delighted to be here. What a great project.
0: Thanks. So let's just start with the basics because I'm assuming that a lot of our listeners have not heard of Mechthild de Magdeburg. So who was she and why does she interest you?
1: Mathilde of Contemplative in what is now Germany, at the turn of the century, she died in the early part of the 14th century. She was what is called a Beguine, as something that we mostly haven't heard of. The Beguines were a group of women primarily in the 13th century, although they continued to exist. That was sort of their sweet spot. They were lay women who did not want to become nuns, And they did not want to live um, the married life. Some were widows, some were virgins. And they were distinctive in that they did not have a particular order they followed. They, like many women and men today, who kind of are searching for a contemplative way of life, find a small community, maybe a study group. They do some meditation on their own. They may work in the world. They may live in community together. But They were all women who were just very dedicated to a life of prayer and often a life of prayer and service. I find them a kind of kindred spirit because there are so many people now who are searching for a, a, a rich spirituality and are having trouble finding it. And they're great models for if you can't find it, then create it. Hmm. So those are a few sort of opening remarks about her.
0: The first thing that, that occurs to me with that opening is what kind of theological training would she have had or what kind of opportunities were available to her in that community or in her society?
1: That's a great question. And it's a question people debate a lot because it's not clear. She's somebody who would have certainly been very deeply immersed in sort of daily practice, you know, so the, and biblical, I won't say biblical study exactly, but praying with the Bible. And her writings are just chock full of biblical imagery. She was very close to the Dominicans, and so she would have had many conversations with them about spiritual matters. And the fact that her book exists at all is because a Dominican father asked her to write down her visions and thoughts. So she would not have had formal training. It's not clear what she had available to her to read. I wouldn't say she had nothing, but we just don't know exactly what she would have had available to read. But she certainly was in the middle of the conversation, which was very rich and dynamic with Beguines and the new orders of the Mendic monks. These orders were brand new, the Franciscans and the Dominicans. In other words, monks who are not enclosed. So there's this very, it was a very fecund period of spiritual investigation. And she would have been in that conversation. The other thing that actually influenced her a good deal was the troubadours and the the romantic poetry of that period. And it actually influenced theologians a good deal in this period. So those were some of the influences that she would have had.
0: Maybe that's related to the first phrase of hers that really caught my attention in your book. And that was this idea of the God hunting heart. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what she might have meant by the God hunting heart.
1: You know, I love that phrase. And of course, I can't know what she meant by that, but but it does evoke something that was very passionate in her. And that is this really consuming desire for relationship with God. And at 12, she... Began a very devoted life of prayer, and as a very young woman, she left her city and uh, went someplace to live as a beguine. She was she had this passion for God, and and always kind of seeking a deeper understanding and a deeper relationship. The sense that her whole life is this pursuit of her divine beloved.
0: You write of a theological world governed by desire. And I was really struck by that phrase because I guess I often think of theology and desire as two very different things. And I think in my society, thinking about theology and desire together is a bit rare. And so I wonder if you could talk about how theology or a theological world governed by desire works? How do those two things intersect?
1: It's a great question. I do think that in the modern period, in in the kind of Europe and America, we've tended to think of religion very much in terms of belief. And that means kind of cognitive ascent, cognitive understanding. And theology is often, though not always, an investigation of the beliefs and claims and doctrines and so on of Christianity. But most human beings don't live in that kind of modern, even I would say somewhat sterile world. We're always oriented to our desires, you know, whether they're simple desires like I'm thirsty or hungry, or whether they're a desire to see a beloved child or a lover. Our whole life is really about desire. And a lot of our hymns capture that, this more effective, aesthetic, open-hearted way of experiencing our life and our faith. But this notion of desire is very ancient, but it certainly goes back as far as the Song of Songs in the Bible. It's very much present in origin in the third century at Pseudo-Dionysius all the way up through Schleiermacher and other contemporary writers but it is a different way of organizing how we think about religion. Belief can be very governed by authority structures. Desire is not so governed by authority structures. It really is the openness of the heart and and the heart's effort to find what is most appropriate to it. Now, desire in our culture is very much associated with consumer desire. And we're really shaped so deeply, whether we want to be or not, by desiring new items that we can buy for needs we may or may not actually have. But the whole consumer culture is about inflaming desire for things you can buy and really building our identity around those things, too. And so there's this sense that desire is, if I get this thing, I will be okay. I will be pretty, I will be smart, I will be popular, I will be safe, I will be okay. And divine desire is structured quite differently. It's not about possessing something. It's not even a religious form of consumerism where, oh, if I get this holy thing, I will be okay. It's just opening your heart To a relationship which is not structured by possession, but by love, which is by its very nature, open-ended, non-possessive, non-thematic. You know, when we fall in love with a person or a child or a friend, we don't possess that person. And part of what you love in loving a person is the mystery of them and the way they change and the way there's things about them you don't understand, even those who are closest to us. And to try and empty our love for a person into a series of understandings would be deeply objectifying, and it would really not satisfy our spirit. And it's this openness, this, the loveliness of mystery that we love and when we love another person. And even more, our love of God is this abandon to not knowing to not controlling, to not, Simone Veil says, beauty is what we love without wanting to eat it. Hmm. And, And that's what this holy desire is. It's a desire that is a liberation from the craving to possess.
0: That's wonderful. And it's actually really helpful for me because I think one of the things I've done as a contemporary person living in a consumer society is trained myself against desire. Way, because of my concern that I'm going to mm-hmm. over consume or imagine myself directed toward things that won't finally fulfill my desire. So what I've done is trained myself just simply not to desire things. Right. And when I read Mechthild, I'm like, this woman, she was so full of desire. Yes. What does it mean to desire like that? And I'm struck by your distinction then between a consumer oriented desire that actually believes there is an object and this kind of divine desire that functions very differently.
1: yes so so one and Christians, not just you know people concerned about consumerism, but a lot of Christian teaching is about controlling or even destroying desire with a kind of anxiety that you're talking about. You know desire can lead us astray, therefore we destroy desire. We repress it. But MacTield and others like her take a totally different strategy. And that is we don't destroy desire. We route it in the right direction. We reroute it. And actually the beauty of creation becomes much brighter. And so we move not only from a desire, a divine desire for God as this ultimate mystery, this divine beloved, but it allows us to love the world non consumptively. I don't need to love a person because they'll make me feel better. I love a person because I think they're precious and I crave their well being. I can love the earth not as a resource, but I love its raw beauty. And I am therefore provoked to want to care for it. So this divine desire of God kind of washes back in the other direction to a divine desire for the beauty and well-being of creation.
0: And that does lead to a kind of complex issue, I think, which is this idea that God might desire us as well as us desiring God how would you make sense of that at a
1: certain point all language about the divine is poetic it's evocative it's performative it's not it's not like a geometry problem where you're using math or concepts or something to adequately describe something mm-hmm. so That expression, God's thirst for us, the thirst of God is from Julian of Norwich, but it's very present in MacTield. And it's a way of describing this experience of God's love for us, God's deep desire for our well-being. And this desire becomes a flow back and forth. And you hardly know whose desire is whose, but it's this deep enjoyment of a beloved and a deep desire for their well-being. And these contemplatives are not afraid to think of god as desiring our well-being and desiring us it is a different way of thinking about god you know because we can think of god as very judgmental or very distant and they do not have that view of god at all they think that who god is love and if you love you desire the well-being of another and so this sense of God's own passion for us, but in both sense of the word, of course, evokes our desire for God. So there's a sense in which the divine desire evokes our desire.
0: I love that idea that in the end, you couldn't really tell whose desire is whose, where desire is located. Isn't one desiring the other, it's this kind of being in the midst of desire. So it's not yes. a subject-object kind of thing. Exactly. Right. You are listening to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian Century. You'll be inspired and informed by the excellent writing and thinking found in the pages of Christian Century magazine. Subscribe with this special offer only for podcast listeners who are also new subscribers. Get a whole year of the century for just nineteen ninety-five. To sign up, go to christiancentury.org slash insearchofoffer. That's ChristianCentury.org
1: slash in
0: search of offer. In your book, you talk about Trinitarian theology and a theology of desire. And I wonder Uh if you could talk a little bit about that. How is Trinitarian theology related here?
1: Many of these contemplatives were very embedded in Trinitarian patterns of thinking in a way that many of us are not. Even though we accept the doctrine of the Trinity, we don't think that way exactly. Um, But for someone like McTeel, this triadic set of energies was at the heart of who God is. And they're united by love. So there's not one part of the Trinity that's job is to love and somebody else's job is to do something else. So, at one level, you have the Trinity united by love. The old word for that is perichoresis, which means dance. I love this. That mm-hmm. there's this dance of love happening within the Trinity. And that dance of love spills out into creation and redemption. She has this fascinating and beautiful long parable where she's imagining the Trinity before creation. And she's imagining what we call the Father or divine as power, but that power has a sterility to it. And so it talks about the Holy Spirit plucking desire and evoking in the Father a desire for humanity. And the second person of the Trinity knows that this will have a tragic outcome, that the human being can't really bear existence without falling, and anticipates that this desire for connection, for creation, will include redemption, and takes on that task, you might say, from the beginning. And so it's this trinity of desire where each is contributing in the yearning for another to love, even if that beloved is going to fall and therefore need to be redeemed. And it's in this interaction of desiring creativities that in a sense, God really manifests as fully divine. It's when God's Desire becomes fruitful, as she says, rather than sort of sterile within itself. That the divine is in an interesting way born in its fullest sense.
0: That is really fascinating. And I think immediately of the way that desire can make us vulnerable. And in this, it sounds like divine desire by this plucking, it's a great image, this plucking of the power of the divine the divine becomes vulnerable to desire
1: yes that's right
0: and also to human choice then somehow
1: that's right that's right because in in loving we are vulnerable our heart is open and therefore when the other suffers we're embedded in that suffering and there's no way to love something created without the understanding, it is going to suffer, it's going to make mistakes. And so you have to fall in love with the whole thing, not just a kind of fantasy of perfection, but fall in love with, in this case, humanity precisely as human, and therefore the suffering that's going to involve. And the second person of the Trinity, who becomes Christ, knows that immediately about divine desire and takes that on. And in a sense, they all do. He is the one that sort of names it and takes that role. But they work as a trinity. They go into it, you might say, open-eyed. It's not like, oh my gosh, who knew that they were going to fall? That's a big surprise. Now what do I do? You know, it's this sense of if I love created humanity, I have to love their fallenness too. I have to be there in the work of redemption, as well as the work of creation. At the very beginning of the book, she uses this fascinating play on words. And she says, oh, Lord God, who made this book? And then God responds, I made it in my powerlessness. In the the German, it's a pun, gemacht and ungemacht. So I had the power to create it you might say in my powerlessness I can't restrain my gifts. I'm I made this because I'm powerless not to give my gifts
0: because love can't not love. yes it's a, that's there's a powerlessness you can't that's, withhold.
1: That's right. And so in God's kind of eternal knowledge holds all of that and remains, in an interesting way, powerless not to create, powerless not to redeem. So God's power grows out of this inability to restrain love.
0: That is wonderful and so different, you know, than, than my normal ways, I think, of thinking about God. You spoke about Mechthild as a Beguine, and I wonder if if there's anything about her life as a Beguine that fostered this idea of the theology of desire? What role that played in the development of her theology?
1: Well, this period in Christian history, you might say it, it was very rich. And not many of us put our minds back into the 13th century a lot of the time. Or if we think about the Middle Ages at all, it's like one big lump. But it was a period of enormous spiritual awakening and vitality. But it was also a period of enormous conflict. So the, the church, in the sense of the Vatican and the Pope and the archbishops and bishops and so on, are really concentrating power. It's the early period where the Inquisition begins to gain some energy and continues to gain a lot of energy over the next few hundred years. So a lot of exertion by Rome to control what people will do, what they'll believe. Sexuality becomes policed in a way, ideas and thinking becomes policed, and the price of falling out of control of the church becomes very high. So that's one thing that's happening at this time. But the other thing that's happening is you have all of these religious movements, many of them vernacular or of lay people. You have St. Francis in the 12th century and Clare. You have the Dominicans. You have the Beguines. All of these represent spiritual energy that is moving in the opposite direction it's the sense of how good God is, how loving God is, how in love with God they are, how they want to devote their lives. They don't want to acquire wealth. They don't want to acquire control. They don't want to be locked into certain belief systems, particularly a belief system around an angry God, atonement, punishment, hell, et cetera. They really have a totally different vision of who God is, who Christ is, what the church is, uh, what it means to love God. And so she is part of these waves of spiritual movement. And one reason we don't remember her or remember this century is because that wave of Christianity doesn't become dominant. It becomes successfully repressed. It never dies, but it is successfully repressed.
0: Did she experience that repression in her lifetime?
1: She did. She ends her life in a Benedictine convent. And she's an old woman by this time. The last part of her book is written in this convent. And she's blind and she has people helping her. And she's very beloved. And her presence there kind of generates a huge piety. So Gertrude the Great and another MacTield and so on are very influenced by her. And they also write. And the nuns of Helfta. So she's very beloved there. And cared for. And you have the sense she appreciates what they do for her, but you do not have the sense she is there because she wants to be there. So when the church got more uncomfortable with the Beguines, they demanded they either enter a convent or marry. And and so there is this period of struggle where the Beguines are trying to figure out how they're going to be Beguines. And ultimately, not fully successfully. You know, the Biggie movement really is destroyed. And she's one who we surmise chose to go into a convent rather than stop being a person of prayer.
0: But she didn't become a nun. She just went into the convent and people cared for her there. So she um, the order, or we don't know.
1: She doesn't talk about it in that sense, but I don't know. I don't think that's clear. It is clear she did not want to become a nun.
0: It's fascinating to think about those dynamics of control and how a small group of women practicing in a certain kind of way could be so threatening to the establishment that they'd feel they have to take action.
1: Well, it's fascinating and horrifying. It happened with the Franciscans. The original vision of Francis and Claire was successfully repressed. This vision of radical poverty And the radical Franciscans who followed Francis's teaching more faithfully were declared heretical. So so it is definitely a period where these movements are understood to be so threatening, they have to be destroyed. And you have this beautiful flowering of women's spiritual writings in this period. And it really dies it always comes back you have julian you have Teresa of Avila. catherine of siena you have little tiny flames but but this sense of a riding community a community of women who are riding their experience their theology their love this is who we think god is this is who we think christ is that does not that is not allowed to continue
0: If you could imagine a way for a contemporary person to take all of this into their lives and do something with it, what do you imagine are the practical applications of of this way of seeing God, of this way of understanding the world, of this concept of divine desire and this pursuit of God in this wholehearted way? One
1: thing that I love about the Baguines is that there's not one answer to that question. That it's a spiritual space where people are supported to explore their life with the divine with a kind of freedom where they're not policed they don't have to think a certain way and so therefore what that would mean to you and what that would mean to me would be somewhat different one person might take it into activism or social work someone else might set up a retreat center someone else might live the ordinariness of their being a mother being a a teacher, a lawyer, whatever they are, a shopkeeper, with a practice inside that anchors them in this love, whether it's meditation or prayer or walking in nature. So on the one hand, it would be a diversity of responses, but I feel like it's a kind of spirituality of enormous freedom because you're not governed by fear. You're not afraid of whether you're saved or damned. You don't have to worry about your beloved friend or whatever who seems to be living in a way that you disapprove of. You know God loves them and they will be cared for in whatever way God cares for all of us in the world and beyond the world. So it's an awakening of radical compassion, of kind of joyfulness. So many people I talk to are very troubled by the world, and rightly so climate change, racism, our divided country, there's so many things to be afraid of and worried about. And one of the things that this way of thinking would do is draw us into the world, not ask us to escape from it, but say, as God is in love with the world, we fall in love with the world in its suffering. So we're present to that. But the suffering isn't total it's not absolute you have this anchor and even delight in the goodness of god that gives you a lot of resource as we all struggle with the difficulties of our personal lives and the difficulties of our communal life
0: did your study of mechtild and the other women that are in this book the thirst of god did they change you in some way
1: I I think so. I'm a theologian and I've been reading these great texts my whole life. And when I teach theology, I tell my students, you don't read theology to learn an idea. You know, like, oh, Calvin said this and Augustine said that. You read theology to be transformed. These are all texts that if you're not changed by them, you're not paying attention to them. <laughs> And I've been a feminist theologian and have felt the dearth of women's writing. And when I discovered these women, I thought, we've always been here. We were here when Pauline lived in the Middle East. We were here when Macrina was teaching her brothers how to be theologians. We've always been here. And typically, we have a vision of how good and sweet God is. Not that women are the only ones who have that sense, but it's more characteristic of women's writings, theological writings, to really believe, genuinely believe that God is good and sweet and does not abandon any of us. Just as a mother does not abandon a wayfaring son or daughter, God does not abandon any of us. And, and to discover myself to be in this much larger community was delightful.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you, Wendy. This has been great. I love exploring and discovering this with you. I struggled a little bit to find a theologian who could engage me around the question of the desire of God. It seems like something that we very often put to the side or it doesn't become the focal point of a theologian's work. And so I really... I'm delighted to connect with you around this and look forward to whatever it is that you are writing next.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. It's been a a treat to talk with you and think about these things together.
0: This has been a podcast production of The Christian Century, thoughtful, progressive Christian magazine of theology, politics, and culture. Visit us at christiancentury.org slash in search of to find show notes for this episode to sign up for our weekly newsletter, and to find all the episodes of the podcast. This podcast is produced by Steve Thorngate. Editorial assistance has been provided by Annalisa Burns and Amy Adams. Special thanks to Kyle Peterson for theme music. The Christian Century is an independent, not-for-profit organization that relies on donations and subscriptions to create rich content like this podcast. Have you considered making a donation to The Century? Is your magazine subscription up to date? Visit ChristianCentury.org to make a donation and subscribe today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.